1: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
2: You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
3: being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
1: Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie that we have podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts at a recent release. I'm Keith phipps here again with
3: Tasha Robinson, Genevieve Kosky,
1: Scott Tobias. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Westworld, Michael Crichton's 1973 film about an amusement park filled with robots and murder. In the second half, we'd like to talk about Westworld, a new HBO series that uses the movie as a foundation for an ongoing narrative. The show has been a long time coming for the network, which has struggled to find a successor for Game of Thrones, which will end soon. Three episodes in, Westworld is looking like it could fill that void. It bears the stamp of two creative teams who, from all appearances, seem to be working together harmoniously. Jonathan Nolan, who co-created the series with Lisa Joy, is revisiting some of the issues of memory and identity raised by the story that inspired Memento. Joy, who is Nolan's wife, is a bit less well-known at this point, having mostly worked on series like Burn Notice and Pushing Daisies. J.J. Abrams and Brian Burke serve as executive producers, and, like Lost, the series has teased a number of mysteries and taken only baby steps toward answering them. Abrams loves his mystery boxes, and the setup so far has suggested this one will take a while to unlock. We could probably eat up the rest of our time talking through the plot. So let me say this. Westworld to date plays like a series in which all involved have decided to deeply consider a lot of the issues the original film breezes past on its way to the killer robot carnage. The lives of the engineers, the motives of the organization behind it, the draw of the park, the inner lives of the robots, the particular lure of the Old West, and the philosophical implications of subjugating creations indistinguishable from humanity. Access your current build, please. What is your name? rose is a rose you say rose what is your itinerary to meet my maker ah. well you're in luck and what do you want to say to your maker My most mechanical and dirty hand <laughs> I shall have such revenges on you both the things I will do what they are yet I know not but they will be the terrors of the earth You don't know where you are, do you? You're in a prison of your own sins.
2: Turn it off.
1: So let's talk about both Westworlds. How have you been enjoying the series so far?
2: I think it's great. I think it's a completely <laughs> brilliant show that by making the robots and the robots' point of view, an element of the show, a strong element of the show, ever-evolving element of the show has just opened up all sorts of philosophical questions. of, of uh, it's, it's made uh, something extraordinarily disturbing. It's, it allows us to sort of question what it is that constructs us as human beings. It's that memento thing of just breaking down how the human mind works and doing it in the form of machines. So like one of those things that... It has like again memento and the prestige has this strong intellectual element, but also this really strong and it's hard to discern in, at first viewing emotional component as well. So uh, I like it a lot.
0: I do too. I'm really enjoying it a lot. I'm enjoying the space that they have to explore these themes. Like, you know, because uh, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan have done so many stories that are specifically about what people want and what they're willing to do to get what they want. And I feel like this is playing out some of the themes that we saw in, for instance, The Prestige or Dark Knight, where we're looking at kind of the darker side of humanity and and the freedom to express that dark side and what it does to people. But we're, we're doing it at a length that lets us explore a bunch of different characters and a bunch of different points of view and explore like the technology that's involved and kind of the ambition that's involved from, from various people. And then the ambition that's involved in the interpoliticking between some of the people behind the scenes. I'm just I'm finding really interesting. I, I think that's what we've seen so far is incredibly promising.
3: Yeah, put me in the incredibly promising camp. But I, I'm kind of approaching. This series a little tentatively, like kind of expecting to get burned because there's so many components of stuff I like in here. Like there's, as you mentioned, Shades of Loss. There's a lot of Shades of Dollhouse and other oh, yeah, series definitely. that I from Joss Whedon that I absolutely loved, and it's very strongly represented here. And Tasha, as you were saying, I love that we kind of get equal consideration of the in front of the scenes and behind the scenes aspect, and there's actual characters on on both sides instead of just kind of being being ciphers as they as they are in the movie but I can already sense by the third episode it going in a lot of directions mm-hmm. and I'm concerned that it's just going to keep sprawling and not, you know, coherent anything. And you you mentioned it as a HBO is hoping there'll be a successor to Game of Thrones. And I am kind of thinking about how Game of Thrones has that problem of just all these scattered stories, and you're just like kind of checking in with one at a time, and they don't really seem to connect together thematically. And I'm not getting that yet from Westworld, but I definitely see how that can happen over time. But in general, I'm really enjoying it. I love going into this world. I kind of am wanting a little more explanation of the logistics of, of the world, but we can maybe get more into that or not. But thematically, it is very, very rich.
1: I think they're being withheld though yeah. on purpose and, and probably for a while. And there's certainly some odd theories, some of which... I
3: just want to know how the guns work in this world. Right. Like the in, in the movie, it is like made very clear. It's like, okay, that makes sense. There's heat sensors on the gun and they can't fire anything that has a body temperature. That does not explain, you know, medieval world and Roman world, how people mm. don't get stabbed by sword words, but I digress <laughs> um, or,
0: or how they don't get hurt when people are throwing chairs around ex- like, yeah. even if they're balsa wood chairs and it's sugar glass you get thrown out through a window face first after somebody punches you you're going to get hurt like are there heat sensors on the robot's fists Yeah,
1: I, I have an answer to both these questions the answer is technology oh. <laughs> but, uh, but no, we I'm... should
0: fear and hate technology
1: <laughs> we, we should have we three episodes in at this point yes. each of us and I'm really enjoying it as well I have your problem with committing Genevieve I have that problem with every television show if I've been burned too many times three episodes in, you kind of get a sense of how big this could be because there's a lot of mysteries being set up and mysteries within mysteries, and there's major characters that we see in the pilot that haven't even come back yet. Important characters I, I've seen reference on the Wikipedia page that haven't even turned up in the, on the show yet. So yeah, they're playing the long game with this one. Now, I hope they can find the right balance. My sense is that Nolan and Joy are really interested, and in, maybe it's unfair to characterize it based on the work we know, but I can see them kind of working through the philosophical issues of it, whereas the lost team of Abrams and Burke are the ones kind of building up the mythology of it. That may be completely inaccurate, but, but I think that is an interesting tension for the show, and so far it's working in its favor.
2: Yeah, I will say that I was nodding throughout what <laughs> Genevieve was saying about possible signs of danger down the road because of those lost aspects of, of the mythology building up, and is it going to be as meaningful? Because I think, can the show... Ever be as good as that pilot? Because I think the pilot is perfection. The way it deals specifically with Dolores, who's mm-hmm. a character played by Evan ro- Rachel Wood, who is a robot. The character is not
1: not actually Evan Rachel Wood. No, she is not. <laughs> she
2: is a ro- but I mean, unconfirmed. But I, but this we don't is, know. This is this is like a, this is very prestigious. The way the character arc works. The fact that she begins each day with such. Optimism and such, you know, hope for the world, and she this routine that involves her, her father, and you, you get this voiceover narration, and then you just see that every day is this ritual of getting terrorized and murdered and raped and everything like that, and then it just begins again, and it's just, the accumulation of that over time is so heartbreaking. I mean, you can't really do it a second time in a way. It's so pure in a way that the series ongoing may may not be able to to match for me.
1: Uh, Wood has compared it to a Disney princess, like putting a Disney princess character. To the ringer like that is really interesting. I, I know what you mean. The, the The pilot is almost a satisfying film on its own terms, like just the journey that she goes through, that final shot. But um, I thought it really kicked into gear with the third episode. I, I think, yeah. The, th-
3: yeah, the third episode is my favorite so far. Mm. But I do want to go back to uh, what you were talking about with Evan Rachel Wood's character real quick. And I, I saw a little bit of kind of online pushback when the pilot aired about like, oh, another HBO series where a woman gets raped in the first however many minutes, blah, blah, blah. And I think that is a understandable nature reaction given a lot of what we see on HBO. But the reason I am willing to cut Westworld some slack at this point is because it really seems to be engaging with the idea of trauma and the scars that leaves. In, in this case, the scars it leaves on artificial intelligence, both uh, Evan Rachel Wood's character and Fandy Newton's character, who is a madam in a bordello. So, I mean, we should say that Westworld is pretty rough. We were talking in the mm-hmm. first half about how the movie is very PG and, you know, sex is just them rolling back and forth. And it's that 70s red paint blood Westworld, the TV series, is the opposite of that in, in in every respect, pretty much. At this point, there is still enough substance and thematic consideration to all that, that it is not yet becoming the cliche that I think a lot of people were writing it off as at the beginning.
0: That said, we we literally open on a shot of naked boobs. <laughs> and as much as I liked the pilot, I do admit that on that first shot, I was just like really <laughs> okay, I, I, okay I, I, at this, this point i think like
3: hbo is just like trolling us into <laughs> a certain oh, sure. extent
0: and well, i mean
1: in like, the show is uh, there's a meta element to the show there's the logan character talks about how you know you may think this westworld experience you're about to go through is just going to be a bunch of tits and violence like i like but it's actually much deeper than that yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like i think there's a message being sent here certainly
0: and i mean the things that dolores goes through don't bother me narratively either. I mean, HBO's. Then it's not hard to watch. Oh sure, no. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't bother me in specifically in the it's not gratuitous. of HBO's stories mm-hmm. um, and the fact that they always seem to have uh, these like these certain elements that are very objectifying for female characters. HBO's flagship shows, like the the biggest hits that they've had, are all consistently. About men in power and how they abuse that power. and one of the primary ways they always abuse that power is by abusing women. A lot of them, as they develop over time and to be fair, Oz was most specifically about a men abusing their power on other men because there weren't a whole lot of women present. But uh, like some of them have developed into, into more over time. That's just it's a running theme that, to the degree that when I see it start up, again, normally I kind of go, All right. Here's, here's another one of those. Thanks, HBO. The pilot of this one really won me over. But the pilot won me over because it's so much, as you say, it's, uh, it accepts trauma and it, it, it's about processing trauma, but it also, it's about morality. It's about what human beings want and like the horror of what happens when they can have whatever they want and what that does to everyone and everything around them. And like the, the, the sheer responsibility of examining that question right now is enough to win me over on the show. Like even if I didn't love the actor's, Even if I didn't love the aesthetics so much, even if I didn't love drawing all of these themes out of a movie that I think didn't do enough with its themes, just the fact that we're examining those themes would be enough, I think, to pull me into the show.
2: I just and also feel like the show, in contrast with all of those HBO shows, is very strongly anti-erotic mm-hmm. and cold and science fiction-y. Yeah, and, and, piles uh,
3: and, of naked bodies yeah, mutilated. Yeah, it's it's yeah.
2: very, you know, I mean, again, as someone who likes the sensual nature of cinema, <laughs> I mean, this is not a turn-on of a show, really. It is an emotional show and it's a traumatic show and it's difficult to watch, but it's anti-sensual, I think. It's, it's cold.
1: And I think also, just to get back to my my favorite topic in these episodes... The idea of sex with robots is disturbing. I mean, I, you, you watch all these people who are eager to jump in into bed with these machines um, or these possibly sentient uh, artificial creations, and and. It, it's a leap that it's hard for my mind, at least, to make. I don't know if it's hard for anyone else's.
2: But that's, I guess, what they're working toward, though, in down in the uh, in the trenches, is to make these seem as real as possible. Mm-hmm. We're all just machines, man. Oh. Yeah, and I,
1: I I like also the the scenes where they you get a glimpse into how the AI works. Like in one of the in the third episode when Bernard is is talking to Dolores, and it's like, "Why did you say that?" Well, that was a subroutine to get me into mm-hmm. gracefully myself. Yeah. To you, and it's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. that makes yeah, or, that makes or, or, sense.
3: or turn off all scripted answers, right. only improvisation. Yeah, yeah. I, th- that is something that I, I wanted to talk about, and what I really am intrigued by in the show is the idea of storylines and, and mm-hmm. the idea of writing the experience. And there is this like smarmy writer character who's kind of at odds with Anthony Hopkins' character, who's the Walt Disney, basically, of, of this world. But yeah, the idea of characters having narratives and backstories that interact but can also change, and that they can we are finding out deviate from it's this neat little meta element to this that also serves a purpose of being a logical explanation for how certain things happen and i find that really satisfying
1: it also lets the metaphor shift like is this really a show about tv shows Mm -hmm. is this really a show about gaming i mean there's you know gaming is a constant threat to this too like the way the narratives get interrupted and, and things change or the visitors are kind of drawn into these narratives, like these come ons, like sign up for the army, join this, join our posse or whatever, you know, it's like they're different possible narratives for people to go down. And we also have um, Ed Harris's man in black, who we should probably talk about mm-hmm. some more talking about finding the deeper layer of the game, but I suspect it also lend itself to other possible um, interpretations as well. One thing that occurred to me is it's an interesting time for this series to be appearing because of the sort of popularization of, of VR, which is oh good,
3: I'm not. The, I'm glad I'm not yeah. the only one who is wondering if this is all VR enabled. Are you thinking within
1: the show or
3: the, the actual West World?
1: Oh, you're thinking the West World. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just not thinking. Clear. I was thinking the series itself seems to me in some ways to be a comment on the idea that our passive forms of entertainment are kind of maybe giving away to more active forms of entertainment, mm-hmm. from, be it gaming or, or virtual reality. I mean, we talk about peak TV as if maybe it's all downhill from here. We talk about the end of cinema. Now, I don't take this, either of those conversations all that seriously because I think there's always going to be a place for those. Nonetheless, I think they're going to have to start living side by side. They already are with gaming and side by side with VR, which seems to be the next coming thing in some ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's VR is, is one of the central uh, topics at The Verge. It's something we cover a lot. And there's this feeling among the editorial staff in particular that what's interesting to write about right now is Individualized experiences, interactive experiences, because people are getting tired of passive entertainment. And we've had some neat pieces lately. Uh, Brian Bishop out in L.A. is doing this series around Halloween about these interactive like haunted house experiences but with narratives that are tailored to you and your choices. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this weird combination of role playing and virtual reality and theater all coming together and that feels like what this is.
1: Kind of it also spe- feels like my nightmare. but uh,
0: <laughs> 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 Kind of speaking to that thing it's about It's a play <laughs> where
1: people talk to you. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember Scott also not being a fan of the sit in the front row and the people on stage oh, might amazing. interact with you can't experience.
2: imagine. Like in live, that's, that's the worst thing I can ever think of.
1: Actually, uh, i gonna I'm gonna out myself as a potential lead out here I think its v r is where I step off with technology. I think I had a had a really good run from the Merlin and Simon <laughs> through the ipad but but uh I think i'm I'm done after that so uh, I don't know y'all you, you enjoy. Was...
0: When I was uh, when I was at Tribeca in April, I had a VR experience where they basically just put me in a headset and I was on stage with the Grateful Dead mm-hmm. in perfect 360.
1: Again, my nightmare.
0: <laughs> it was amazing. Like as as a music fan, I can't believe that you wouldn't be into that. You're on stage with the Grateful Dead, but unobserved. Like you're not in anybody's way, but you have a perfect view. You can turn in any direction uh, and see what's going on. You can see the the people who are watching the show, and you can watch them. Experience it, or you can like focus in on anybody who's on stage and like watch the
2: fine details. I think Keith is more of a string cheese. <laughs> so if you really put, if you uh. plant that in his head, then maybe.
0: But I mean, the idea behind that kind of virtual reality experience is you are having exper- an experience that goes beyond something like going to Westworld and shooting somebody or doing a VR thing where you're in space. It's an experience that you can't have in reality. But it's also – it's just like this this high-fidelity immersive thing where you choose what your focus is, where you choose – it's kind of simultaneously the, this experience that's universal. Like no matter how many times you play through it, it's going to be the same song and the same space and the same crowd. But it's also – entirely designed to your specific taste. Like, you can decide where to look, you can decide where to focus and and what you're interested in. And I mean, that's so much of what they're talking about in Westworld, is this ability to, like, reconfigure reality, like, reality goes around you in this, like, giant, perpetual, ongoing sphere. But you're the most important person there. Everything you do has a ripple effect and everything you do causes the story to realign around you. I mean, that's a humongous ego trip. I think you guys just don't have enough ego is what's going on here. (laughs) Maybe you also don't have $40,000 a day to blow on these
1: experiences. Mm, there's that too. Okay, well, I mean, if it is a matter of ego and, and, and sort of ego driving us to, to seek these experiences, what's your take on the, the various humans and their motives in this world, Scott?
2: Yeah, so yeah, my topic is humans. And after the first episode of Westworld focused on Dolores who is an android, uh, the second episode shifted to follow one of the newcomers uh, named William as he shuttles into the park for the first time. Uh, his escort brings him to the the room where he can pick his custom-fit western garb, and, and in the process, she makes it clear to him that she's available sexually. He starts to ask her a question that she obviously gets from every person, which is if she's real, and she, her answer is a rhetorical question, which is if you can't tell... Does not matter? And I think at that moment, it does matter to him. He turns her down. He picks the white hat instead of the black hat. And yet the park, as we hear from both the veteran guests and the the behind-the-scenes people, have a way of revealing who guests are. People find out who they are through the experience of visiting this park. You know, the hosts in Crichton's Westworld have rings around their hands that let you know if they're robots or not. And, and, then, and we know already here that in this West world, that the androids are showing more human-like qualities, like uh, you know, a growing capacity for recalling memory and, and thinking and acting independently. And you add that to the fact that there's no way to tell on the surface whether they're real or unreal, and both the guests and the viewers are sort of forced into a uh, moral quandary. You know, the more human the androids are, the more real the violations are against them. And I think uh, as viewers, we're having a similar experience to the guests in terms of. Of morally reconciling crime against androids. Uh, we don't have the safe distance of looking at their hands and knowing that it's okay to harm them.
3: I mean, I'm I'm just waiting for the moment in the Westworld series where we discover that someone we thought is a host is actually a human and someone or someone we thought was a human is actually a host. Like well, it's, 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 the it's first episode. episode. Beyond that, I think it's going to be someone that we know for several episodes. It's gonna be a, a mm-hmm. twist. Just the fact that there is no way to distinguish between the robots and humans in this world and the the, the lines between humanity and AI are so purposefully blurred in, in the series in a way that they are not in the movie that it has to be building to something. There, some, there something. are many, so, I mean, many,
1: many shoes to drop, I think. We're dealing on with on a Nolan like
0: There's exactly. going to be layers. Exactly.
1: exactly. I, I, the most extreme interpretation I've heard so far is the only human is Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> which is, uh, <laughs> I love that idea. I, I think it's too easy of a twist. Oh my gosh, uh, I've so
2: avoided all fan theories I'm just gonna be totally blown away when they happen one after another
0: it would be nice to be totally blown away by a twist but I, one of the things – I mean, we didn't really talk that much about William in New Westworld or Peter in Old Westworld. And I think one of the – kind of the interesting through lines in both stories is the question of, like, how we feel about the protagonist. Mm-hmm. I think Peter in 70s Westworld is going through the same process that William goes through in current Westworld, where they're both kind of trying to decide what is moral. How do I want to interface with this? Who am I in relationship to this fantasy? And both of them kind of get drawn into the fantasy based on what's available but both of them still kind of hold on to to certain bits of moral code that are important to them and i think it's very important that both stories kind of tell us like here's here's where we want to draw the moral line like here's what it what it means to be human is to hang on to your morality even in an environment where your morality doesn't matter Mm -hmm. and where you're actively paying money to toss away your morality for as long as you're there. I mean, I, I think that's what makes those characters interesting. And to whatever degree they're sympathetic, what makes them sympathetic is kind of seeing in them that moral conundrum and watching them define who they are. And then, of course, we have the man in black,
3: Ed Harris's character, who in in a lot of ways kind of fills the role of the gunslinger in, in 70s Westworld, although obviously there's a lot more going on there but he is at this point in the story the kind of the biggest embodiment of evil in this world your mileage may vary depending on your your definition of evil but he is a very violent man with no regard for ai life <laughs> um and he is human and he is kind of the worst of human impulses given a playground in which to indulge those impulses and i think putting that onto a human character rather than a host where that is their story or their narrative is very pointed because it, all of these hosts were created by humans.
1: Well, and from one point of view, he's not evil at all because the, he's not done anything wrong right. to another, you know, anything that violates or abuses another human.
2: And I mean, and he's trying to figure out how this thing works. He's, he's been through it. Obviously, enough times to where he knows all of these stories and, and knows all of these these characters and is trying to find out how the game operates. He's, uh, I mean,
3: he, he's like your hardcore gamer, yeah. He, mm-hmm. You know, who has wants the most kills.
0: Oh well, but, or you know, is exploring the environment thoroughly sure. and trying to find like where the programmer left a hole in the wall for mm-hmm. you know the the really thorough gamer to slip through and find another world there. I mean, one of the mysteries of the show at this point is exactly what his ambitions are. Like, how deep do they go? And how deep does the world go in order in a way that might fulfill those ambitions? And then at the same time, we've got Anthony Hopkins on the other side. And the question is, how deep do his ambitions go? I feel like we've got a kind of a white hat, and a black hat story here, that's specifically about human endeavor and human desire. And I, I kind of said that earlier that it's all about like human desire and how that how it's fulfilled but then like sort of outside the game outside the story we have these kind of two conflicting one person trying to build like ever bigger worlds to what end we don't entirely know yet and one of one person trying to pu- puncture holes in it's that the creator world creator and the destroyer
3: yeah exactly want to get mythological about it
0: but <laughs> in both yeah actually I hadn't thought about that but it is a very like god and, and devil
1: kind we're, of we're in lost territory all over again yeah, <laughs> like the
0: blight and the blue. Black. It's all a game of backgammon, you guys. I gotta admit, I am way less interested in, in their ambitions than I am in kind of the more complicated, like, moral conundrums going on in the show.
3: You know, I, I said at the beginning that I, I really like that we get some actual characters and some actual stories in the behind the scenes world. But at this point, I do care about the ai characters so much more specifically evan rachel wood but also i'm really curious what's going on with james Marsden's
1: character teddy flood
3: really teddy flood teddy flood Flood. yep right there i'm looking at it on on the screen i do think it's interesting that the robots have so much humanity in this world which is a pretty good segue into my topic which hey look at that is robots (laughs) um We've already talked about a lot of what I wanted to bring up, but given that we're talking about robots, I thought maybe we should devote a little time to one Isaac Asimov, who's most famously known for coining the Three Laws of Robotics. Asimov wrote a lot of short fiction centered on robots, all of which was collected in the 1982 collection, The Complete Robot. And I wanted to read a little from the introduction of that book, um, where he distinguishes between the two types of robot stories he grew up reading, the first being robot as menace stories, which he called, quote, a mixture of clank, clank, and arg, and there are some things (laughs) that Whitman was not meant to know. And he expressed a general disinterest in that type of story. The second type of robot story he mentions is robot as pathos stories, where robots are lovable and usually put upon by cruel human beings. He says he gravitated toward this type of story, but in the course of writing his first robot story, called Robbie, he homed in on a different way to think about robots, which was, in his words, as industrial products built by matter-of-fact engineers. They were built with safety features so that they weren't menaces, and they were fashioned for certain jobs so that no pathos was necessarily involved. So I think the robots of both Westworlds ultimately fall into this final category of Asimovs, but one tips much more to the robot as menace side and the other much more towards the robot as pathos side. Or to put it another way, the 1973 Westworld robots are more akin to soulless machines, where the robots of Westworld 2016 are in the process of attaining something like a soul, something like humanity. There's never any suggestion that the 1973 robots are capable of becoming something more than machines, highly evolved machines, but machines just the same. Whereas by the third episode of Westworld, we have the suggestion that these robots are moving beyond sentience into consciousness, which in turn makes them objects of pathos. So I feel like this is a more common thread with modern robot stories, sort of wrestling with the horror of creating non-human consciousness and the implications that come with that. And I just wonder why we as a culture seem to be gravitating toward that perception now. Is it just a simple evolution of ideas or the fact that robotics have advanced to a point where it seems feasible that such a leap could take place in our lifetime i i I don't really know but i'm just wonder if you guys have any thoughts
0: I I want to back up on that. I think it's interesting that you find them developing consciousness as moving them more towards pathos. I think they're very much objects of pathos at the beginning, and then moving towards consciousness moves them in the direction of threat, because the closer Mm. they get to consciousness, the closer they get to self-awareness and self-determination. And I mean, you just you have this from really the first moments of the first episode, the understanding that eventually this is all going to go very, very badly for the people abusing them. But where I feel Feels to me like we're moving through those genres of Asimov's one by one.
3: Yeah, I I, I didn't think of it that way, but but you're totally right. I I, I guess I'm thinking more in terms of what's happening to uh, Evan Rachel Wood and Thandie Newton's characters, where they are kind of realizing their their past trauma, and they at this point they do not seem like threats so much as objects of pity. I certainly see how that can change and evolve as as the series goes on, but at, at this point, those two characters in uh, in particular are objects of pathos for me.
1: Uh, to address your question of why now, I, I think the simplest and correct answer is that we have more intimate relationships with technology now than, mm. than we've had. Well, in, I'd say in the last 15 years or so, it's gotten so we have very intimate relationships with our technology. And they're always at hand. We're always online. We're always connected. And and that's a huge change that's happened really quickly. I don't know that we've necessarily processed what that means, and you know, I think hence we get stories that try to work through that. Like you know, I'm thinking of her and and, and this and and Galactica, uh, Galactica, which I keep coming back to, is as a as a really interesting uh, exploration of that as well.
0: I think that's really true, but I also think that there's a degree to which we're living in a society that more and more is predicated on self indulgence and the idea that anything we want, somebody is willing to sell to us. There's there's some way to commodify every kind of indulgence that you want. And I feel like part of what this show is questioning is what that does to us. And one of the ways that it does it is through these these very human characters and exploring like what happens to them. But it seems to me that it's – and I kind of referenced this when I said I thought it was terrific that we're asking these questions now. I mean it's just because like of the political and cultural and social environment we're in right now where the – People who have the most money are so aimed towards, like, cybernetic lifestyle. Like, how how can we find new ways to pleasure ourselves? And there's always the technological chase for the next adventure, the next entertainment, the next, uh, you know, moral ground to cross in order to (laughs) experience something in our increasingly jaded lives.
2: My thought, this which is shifting away from technology, is I just keep going back to Memento and how Nolan and Joy are using breaking down these components to kind of explore what it is to be human. What it what and I think it comes down to memory, right? That's the evolutionary leap that is being taken on the show. They have this program that they follow every day. And then by introducing these gestures, which he calls reveries, reveries, right, uh, where they can draw upon previous constructs, that gives them depth and unpredictability, and all of these things that add layers to who they are. And and uh, and that's so much to me mirrors Memento and his his system and how he. He would construct himself through memory every day with all of the tattoos and all of the photographs and you know all the notes to himself. You know that's how he built himself up, and I feel like that's happening in in Westworld as well through uh, the robots.
1: Which kind of brings us back to <laughs> brings us back to the question from Kubo in the last episode. Oh yeah, as well. for sure. The idea that our, our memories and our stories we tell about ourselves decide who we are, and and I know Nolan, this Nolan didn't work on Inception, but it, it sort of
2: ties into Christopher Nolan's Inception as as well. And I was thinking too about like the competing visions for what Westworld is supposed to be. The chief scriptwriter is narrow and is limited and is vulgar a vision as he might have it's it's, self-cannibalism. is self oh, cannibalism. Well, God. right, exactly. But but it's he's probably the most ethically sound of anybody down there in a way because he says okay this is where the line is drawn this should be a theme park where people go to live out these fantasies and then they go home and if you add this other element reveries if you make them more human uh, if you take away the, the storytelling element and make it this more immersive world, it becomes way more uh, screwed up. Whereas <laughs> Anthony
1: Hopkins, Robert Ford, the, the founder of the park or co-founder, I, I think he sees it as an ongoing experiment and wants to see how far he can go with that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he is the person who introduced the reveries, which, you know, has to realize is going to at least has an element of risk to it as well. And we don't know where he's taking the storyline or whatever it is he's working. That we don't even know what this object with the cross on top of it even is it looks like the top of a steeple or yeah like i mean a, I, I, I took it
2: to being that the that religion was being brought into yeah the, uh,
1: but it's an it's an odd kind of shrine like thing though it's it looks like the, the steeple of a church but there's no church It kind of looks like an oil well as well hmm. it's it's kind of an odd monolith
0: so tell me if i'm crazy or not on this the first several times i saw westworld the 73 version I just assumed that what was happening to Yule Brenner's gunslinger was that he was developing some form of memory and that he was developing over time and that he kept going after Peter out of a sense of vengeance. Like he, some part of him didn't like being used for this purpose of being, you know, killed by his own incompetence as a gunslinger over and over (laughs) because he was being held back by his programming. So he keeps coming back again and again to the same person. On this watch through, I didn't see enough to the movie to really justify that. I feel like that's something that I want to be there, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's there in the text. It just kind of feels like he is a robot going through the motions, and by the end, he's a robot going through the same programming that he's gone through every single time. He just doesn't have the restraint that would actually stop him from killing his target. Which yeah, is it?
1: That's an interesting, interesting question, because I, like you, that's always been my way of viewing the film as well, but I think to some degree we're projecting our own human impulses, kind of like it's a neat trick where we're kind of doing what the characters in the uh, film uh, are asked to do as well you know, and it's a good example of the show taking these ideas that are just suggested in the original and kind of taking them and playing with them and folding them in on themselves and and creating all kinds of new complications to them. But there is sort of, there's a fearfulness to that film. And you want to talk about the paranoia of uh, the show and the paranoia of the original film as well, right, Tasha?
0: Yeah, I did. When Tomorrowland came out, the Brad Bird movie about George Clooney twirling ever towards a a happier future, (laughs) kind of the premise of that movie was that there was a point in time where our fictions about the future were happy and upbeat. And then suddenly we turned a corner and suddenly all of our visions of the future were depressive and sad and that that killed us as a culture. And I wrote a piece for The Dissolve about how... Every era that has had science fiction has had science fiction about how we should fear this new technological development. We should fear the future we should fear our planets are going to collide into each other, or uh, AI is going to take over and kill us all, or maybe're the world that we 're in isn 't really the world we 've already been taken over by robots. <laughs> no matter what the story is there 's always in every era been this kind of, of paranoid horror as a fairly strong, if not necessarily dominant strain in science fiction. And <laughs> And there are times in the same way when I see the opening shot of HBO is a naked lady. There are times when I see a new science fiction show or story or what have you, that's about how this thing that we're just now on the cusp of developing is going to kill us all, that I kind of roll my eyes and go this again. Like, why are we so afraid of, of the future? And the answer always seems to be, we're afraid of losing our humanity. We have to figure out what humanity is in order to hang on to it. We're paranoid that whatever change comes down the pike, that change is going to take away from who we are. I find it really interesting that in so many science fiction stories, we keep kind of moving the line of what humanity is and where it is. And I'm very glad to see this show grappling so directly with that, not with just the assumption that we are this kind of like perfect and complete species, but something that we've built because we have challenged God and, and crossed some line, something might impinge upon that. It questions who we are on a fundamental level. Kind of to start with. But I'm sort of curious how you guys relate to this the way science fiction is always telling us to be afraid of science and afraid of scientists and afraid of technology and afraid of developments and just afraid of change in general.
3: Well, it's always wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, we don't know that we're not all in a in sure. a glowing pink bubble baths being tended by robots.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not as well versed in the various eras of science fiction as other people at this table, so I probably shouldn't be talking yeah, about. You're this the ones
1: quoting Isaac Asimov at right? links. So. I did something <laughs> called research.
3: I, I, I do think it, it's interesting that in Westworld and in lots of science fiction that kind of trades in this paranoia, we're dealing with technology that. Allows us to express our humanity in some form or another, and in the case of Westworld, that's indulging human vices, and maybe the fear or maybe even shame that comes with that is what is is playing into the paranoia, the the idea that technology will erode our humanity by enabling the worst aspects of it. So maybe that is is sort of at play there. Uh,
1: something we haven't talked about is was why the old West. Mm-hmm. And why that fantasy has such such a draw in either film. I think it's a little more obvious in Westworld because these are characters who, even if it's in the near future, who grew up watching a lot of Westerns. That's not that's, necessarily that's true of our generation. The Western has been more of a, a legacy genre that that's occasionally has like surges of revival, but it's not really primary form of entertainment. But I think we don't really know that much about the world of the series, the world of outside of Westworld, what day-to-day life is for someone like uh, William. But there is, seems to be the pleasure of escaping from technology via technology yeah. at the core of this uh, appeal. And, and like the, the Old West being a sort of fully developed, recognizable uh, world that's not troubled by the constant connectivity. I, I can see that being. I can see that being a draw for us right now. Actually, right. totally. I mean, sure.
2: free, freedom. I guess would be the word for it. You think about the old west. You think lawless. place, right? Yeah. Lawless. Exactly. And and you know, surely the if the world we live in now is. Uh, developed any further into the future, we can expect a world full of surveillance where our lives are very controlled and monitored. And to go to a place, you know, again through technology, where you do have that room to roam and nobody telling you what to do and being able to pursue whatever, uh, you know, fantasy or vice you want to pursue. I mean, that there's an appeal to that.
3: But interestingly, the guests in Westworld are surveilled and and monitored by the behind the scenes people like their every move is tracked and that's ostensibly for their safety or to continue the narrative that they've uh, inserted themselves into but they are being observed constantly. Yeah, that's a good point.
2: This whole scenario, top to bottom, reveals our humanity rather than th- than any threats to it. It really is the component that undoes everything. At least you can see it undoing everything, where, you, where there are characters who are just, f- in their human ways, flawed and inserting those flaws, their, their hubris, their vulnerability into these creations and making them flawed and not functioning as they should. I think about those conversations that Jeffrey Wright has with Dolores. That's him expressing his humanity. That's not him trying to manage the situation It's him making it worse because he has his own impulses and his own instincts about what he wants from these androids too. So in that sense, it kind of breaks from it. I don't think the show is really as concerned with the future as much as it might seem, I think it really is just a breakdown of the component parts of humanity. Really,
0: I think it's still early days, and we still have yet to see like what the show is is truly going to be about. But overall, given where we are right now, I think you're absolutely right. I'm more thinking of the original Westworld mm-hmm. and that feeling of you know AI is going to kill us, yeah. robots are going to kill us, our servants are going to kill that, us. I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, Crichton definitely comes from that perspective. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Crichton has that. You know. The center can't hold and when it breaks it's going to fall on your head because you are arrogant and you have yeah. played god you kind of, of picture
1: of Crichton thumbing through popular mechanics and like mm, that might kill us <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> it's like
2: but women can be sexual harassers too <laughs> uh,
0: yeah well yeah from freedom for women or the ability to self-determine themselves in the business world will kill us yeah much right. like the japanese and or dinosaurs <laughs> by the way you know what else uh original west world and Jurassic Park have in common? Characters that can't see you unless you move. Ah, That's true. Yeah. I had completely for, forgotten that that was in my list, but uh, yeah, the, the parallels just keep on flowing, and yet Jurassic Park somehow does not come to complicated grips with the nature of our humanity and how our choices reveal it.
1: Okay, that probably wraps it up for this week. Westworld, the film, can be run it digitally via the usual streaming services. It's also available on Blu-ray and DVD. Westworld, the series, is currently on HBO and available through HBO Go and HBO Now. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show.
3: Hey guys, Genevieve here with a little announcement for our Chicago and Chicago-adjacent listeners. I know there are a lot of you guys out there. We're going to be doing a live show as part of the Chicago Podcast Festival, which is taking place the weekend of November 17th. And you're invited! Yay! We're doing a live recording on the night of the 19th, which is a Saturday at Steppenwolf's 1700 Theatre. So we should be feeling very fancy, and we're working on a fun and different format for the show, so it should be a treat for you guys as well. Tickets are $20, and that also gets you in to see a recording of the Chicago-based Performing Arts Podcast Booth 1, so there's a nice bonus for you as well. We'd love to see you guys there and talk about some old and new films with you. You can find out more and buy tickets at chicagopodcastfestival.org. See you there.
1: Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, want to kick us off?
3: Sure. Uh, I want to talk about a YouTube channel that some of our listeners are likely familiar with, given that it has 800,000 subscribers, but it's always new to someone on the internet. So I'm recommending Every Frame a Painting. I had seen individual videos from this channel before, but I didn't realize until recently that it's a video essay series, each entry of which is dedicated in some way to film form. What creator Tony Zhou calls the vocabulary and grammar of the film language. That can mean anything from editing to shot composition, to music, to color, and so on. Uh, Most of these videos have millions of views, so you may have come across one or two in your internet wanderings, but it's really worth it to just sit down and go through the 20 or so videos on the channel, which function as this amazing crash course in both classic and modern film techniques. In particular, I'd point listeners to some of the videos devoted to unpacking the preferred techniques of several filmmakers, including the Coens and their use of the two-shot, Akira Kurosawa's movement composition, Scorsese's use of silence, and Edgar Wright's visual comedy. Each video is in the four to ten minute range, so they're nicely bite-sized, and they're all extremely thorough and well done, more than worth a click of a mouse in a few minutes of your time. Uh, that's Every Frame a Painting. You can find it at youtube.com slash painting. and I believe it is a Patreon-sponsored project, so if you like it, you can also support it that way.
2: Wow, that, that sounds great. I, I, I don't know why. I, I, you would really I know, like these. I know, I know, and I've, I've heard. And his. they're
3: short. You love short uh, things.
2: Uh, yeah, they don't take much of my time. <laughs> the film I'm going to recommend takes up a little bit more time than that. That's, it's called Certain Women. Uh, it's the new film by Kelly Reichert, who's one of my favorite directors. Uh, she's only made great movies, that's all she's done. River of Grass, <laughs> Old Joy, Winnie and Lucy, Meek's Cutoff, Night Moves. Now this one, this is based on three short stories by a writer named Mally Molloy, who is Colin Molloy's sister from the Decemberists*. Huh. How about that? And they're all centered on women in Montana. Uh, Laura Dern plays a small town lawyer who's trying to advise a mentally disabled man against pursuing an unwinnable lawsuit against uh, the company that employed him when he was injured on the job. Uh, Michelle Williams plays a woman who tries to negotiate with an old man to give her and her husband a pile of native sandstone to use in a house they're building for their family. And then the last segment uh, stars Lily Gladstone as a ranch hand who audits an adult education course taught by Christian Stewart, a lawyer who drives four hours each way twice a week to do it these are all very small stories with subtle intersections but many of reichert's pet themes are present unsettled characters trying to find their place in the world you know the reconciliation of civilization and nature in at least two stories the difficulties women face in asserting their will over men it's a beautiful piece of work, and it's defiantly independent. Reichert is has never been one to negotiate for some Hollywood deal or Amazon show. Uh, <laughs> she continues to be sort of a short story. Writer in a novelist's world, and um, you know, certain women. It's just a very determinately small film. That's very subtle, and uh, you know, if you need big narratives, it's not going to do it for you. But I think once you get in its groove, it is a fascinating movie, and I, I think one of the best films of the year.
1: You had me at Reichert. I will push back a little. I'd say Night is the kind of closest that she's done to a, a big story in some ways, but it's such a character
2: piece. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, just, I just want to push back and tell you you're wrong. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'll well I me mean, tell well, Meek's, Meek's cutoff is big too, but it mean, but, but her approach to that material the, to a western is like okay let me let's burrow into the details let's say let's make the most exciting thing in Meek's cut off the big suspense set piece be lowering a wagon down a hill yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know and so that's the way she approaches it but there's a just a, I think a thematic coherence to her work. I think she is a legitimate independent filmmaker. You know she's of that school where it's not some means to an end. You know she's not looking to audition to do a Marvel film. She, she makes her movies, and when she doesn't make them, she goes and she teaches. And then every few years she goes out and makes a movie again. She's she's awesome.
0: Unlike Keith, I'm going to push back and tell you that you're right. I also saw certain women at TIFF, and uh, it's just it's it's really sweet. It's really small. It's really specific. It's really immersive, and uh, I. I am not always nearly as sold as on Records films as you are, but uh this one this one really took me. All
1: right. As for my contribution to your next picture show, I saw a really great horror film called Under the Shadow, which is not a high-profile release. It got picked up by Netflix, so it's probably going to be something a lot more people are going to watch Like a couple of months from now than not watching it now. But it is in theaters. It isn't on-demand. It is a horror film set in Tehran in the 1980s from a director named Babak Anvari, who is now based in London. He grew up in Tehran. Uh, I believe he moved to England at 19 as an aspiring filmmaker. And he's drawing on his own experiences, particularly a childhood spent at the end of the war between Iran and Iraq when Iraq started desperately trying to regain some advantage by hitting Tehran and other cities with missiles. So it's a story of a, a mother and her daughter who are left alone in their apartment building in Tehran when the father of the family, he's a doctor, he called it for mandatory service at the front. So you already have the situation where they're alone in this apartment building, in a city that's being shelled with missiles, but then there's also the matter of the gen that are going to torment this family, The and they're not the nice genies of the film Aladdin. It is a really stylishly made film, a really subtly made film. It begins kind of in the style of Iranian neorealism, and it kind of slowly turns up the unsettling elements it, by the end it reminded me a lot of the Baba Duke. if you like that film if you like horror films in general if you're a fan of Jin, i would uh, i would recommend uh, seeing the movie under the shadow
0: that sounds really cool definitely
1: definitely a director to watch and, and a film to seek out hmm. tasha how about you
0: well, two things. Uh, first of all, The Atlantic had an article recently that I tweeted uh, enthusiastically called How Hollywood Whitewashed the Old West, which sounds like a very scoldy title for a very scoldy article. But it's actually it's a fascinating piece of film journalism written by Leah Williams. And it kind of starts with uh, the new Magnificent Seven and how it's much more racially diverse and how it's come in for criticisms of tokenism, bringing in characters of color just to have characters of color, and being a a historical, as a result, you know, being unfaithful to the truth of the West, and then it goes on to explain what was really going on in the West and how the history of Hollywood has been about removing the people of color that actually made up a really significant portion of the story of the Old West. Among other things, she uh, tracks the the storyline of the Searchers was actually based on the real life story of a black man in the West. Um, the character of the Lone Ranger was heavily inspired by a black man in the Old West, and it talks about the origin of cowboys in Spanish tradition and a lot of other things. It's really informative. It's a really entertaining read, but it's also, you know, if you're seeing people constantly complaining, they're throwing these things into stories nowadays as a sop to the social justice warriors or whatever. No, what's what's going on right now with modern westerns is actually a conscious corrective to literally decades of cultural whitewashing and cultural brainwashing, kind of removing the actual history from history in pursuit of the specific image. And it's not a, again, a scoldy or complainy type of article. It's just, hey, here's a bunch of really cool, interesting trivia about where these films came from and how what we're seeing today is actually much more accurate to history. So that's The Atlantic, How Hollywood Whitewashed the Old West. Uh, It's a really entertaining read, but it's also just a really useful link to bookmark. Also today, I saw a little movie called Batman Return of the Caped Crusaders, which is Rick Morales' animated movie, yet another movie in the the kind of Warner Brothers DC animated story stable, but this brings back Adam West and Burt Ward and Julie Newmar to reprise their roles from the original 1960s Batman, and it is very much a loving recreation of the 60s Batman TV show. The animation style is, all of the character models are taken from from the 60s show. The voices, obviously, they couldn't bring back people like Cesar Romero or Burgess Meredith or Frank Gorshin, because unfortunately, all of those people are dead. But the people voicing the characters are voicing the characters as they were originally on the 60s show. The humor is very similar. It's referential, but not too referential but i mean it's basically a feature film that that could be a lost episode well kind of a lost double episode of the 60s batman it has that sense of humor it has the ridiculously florid alliterative writing it has the scene where they go up the side of the building on bat ropes and it's very clear that they've just turned the uh the camera 90 degrees um there's actually a scene where a fight uh takes place in a tv studio and somebody pauses to put all of the tv cameras on fight scene dutch tilt (laughs) to reflect the fact that there was always the dutch tilt going on in the fights you you know you get the big blam kapow plazui uh comic book splashes when the fighting goes on um it's kind of it's kind of corny in the way of the 60s show it's kind of hilarious but it's actually darker than the 60s show was but not dark to a ridiculously grim and gritty place more just being a little more daring i think than they could be in the 60s with some of the implications of like who batman is and uh how he would react under certain circumstances it's light entertainment but it's really fun it was in theaters today for a as a fathom simulcast one time event but it is as of and we're taping this on monday the 10th as of tomorrow tuesday the 11th it'll be available widely on demand and then fairly soon it'll be out on dvd and blu-ray as well
1: well oh, tasha i already had the atlantic article uh, saved to read later so I'll, I'll dig that up and and anything with batman you know i'm there so uh thanks for those recommendations and thanks to everyone else And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out November 1st and 3rd. Tasha, what do we have lined up?
0: In a previous episode, I talked up Andrea Arnold's immersive new cross-country road trip movie, American Honey, because I didn't think we'd get to do it on the podcast. Surprise! Um, <laughs> given that it's still opening in new theaters, we decided to go ahead and feature it. American Honey is a pleasure because it pulls viewers into an adventure as a young woman played by first-time actress Sasha Lane joins a loose crew of magazine subscription sellers on a trip across the heartland. It's a movie about poverty and loneliness, but it's also about how people bond through shared experiences in pop culture, especially music. We're pairing it with another movie about a young person dragged along on a road trip adventure by a charismatic hustler with his own agenda. That's Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho with Keanu Reeves and the Late River Phoenix. Both American Honey and My Own Private Idaho are about what emotional connection looks like for people with no money and not a lot of future, and they're both kind of about the energy and the amorality of youth and those early years before you entirely know who you are, but when you kind of feel like you do know who you are. We'll have a lot more to say about the connections between those two films in a couple of weeks.
1: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Westworld and Westworld, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing on this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days?
0: You can find me writing about culture and technology at theverge.com. And you can find me on Twitter at atasha Robinson.
3: And you can find me at the culture section at vox.com, mostly behind the scenes, but also sometimes in front of the scenes. And I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky.
2: And uh, I actually wrote my very first piece for the New Republic on Kelly Reichert. So you can look at that overview (laughs) there and uh, find me in the usual places at NPR, Variety, Rolling Stone, Vulture, uh, New York Times, and uh, other such outlets. And you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias.
1: I've got that behind the scenes, in front of the scenes thing going that Genevieve does at uprocks.com, And you can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at at NextPicturePod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, and while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us to find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin, the animal Griffith, for his assistance producing the show. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting Family and Podcast and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.